0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our Father, we give thanks that we can gather for worship another time on our journey in this life and we pray um, for this time together uh, reflecting on what it means to pursue uh, you and to be pursued by you and we pray this in christ's name amen come on in yeah please come in um Well, thanks for coming, the billing, I'm up against some tough billing here, but my ego is not in the way uh, at all. (laughs) It always is, that's the problem. (laughs) Uh, If you were with us last time, um, we we did a a kind of historical survey and I I do wanna go through and do some preliminary before I kind of wrap this up as a, a concluding lecture, this is the last one. Recovering freedom Christianity and the dilemma of liberalism. Uh, What does it mean? Um, Who do I trust and why does it matter and one of the uh, Preliminaries I threw out last time is we're just what we're not talking about. We're not talking about political Convictions here. I'm not talking about how you vote Uh, There may be points of contact uh, But I think those are strained to find and I don't think this is the place to tear them apart <laughs> in one way or the other because I don't think it's relevant to the kind of liberalism that I'm talking about. So there's the you know kind of capital L liberalism and the lowercase l liberalism. I, I think we're dealing more with capital L sort of ideology sort of big picture. I also think that one of the qualifications I put on um, the topic is we're all liberal in the historical scheme of things. If you were to throw us another uh, context of, of history uh, we no matter where you are in the political spectrum uh, in terms of lowercase L liberalism you're probably going to you know look real American uh, in in the middle of uh, you know the invasions of the Hun or, or something like that you know or the the, the, the decline of the Roman Empire it, it there's this we, we live in a time where uh, liberalism is part of our identity as political people as opposed to, say, monarchist or, you know, an established church uh, or or a a fixed aristocracy. These are all characteristics of pre-liberal politics. So that was another um, point I wanted to make. So I'm talking about theology. I'm talking about how we um, understand and process and live our our faith and and practice it and practice it that that that's what I'm I'm really talking about and I gave some examples last time uh, some quotes that that gave us uh, some picture of what it would be with one being from uh, J Gresham Machen uh, formerly of Princeton and later Westminster died in the 1930s who basically said uh, cr- Christian liberalism is full of good people, but it's not necessarily Christianity. Uh, it's not necessarily what Christianity has been. Even though you can have wonderful neighbors and friends, it's it's not necessarily what it's been. And so he was very sober about it. It's saying something else than what has been said about the Christian faith. Okay. And then I think another example I gave was from... Um, uh, David Jenkins, the Bishop of Durham, who who said that what what we it's not the resurrection so much that we're concerned about. Th- this is an example of Christian liberalism in the late 20th century, but that it's Jesus's life and his power and his purpose. It's Jesus as a moral example, Jesus as an ethical teacher. Um, it's not the facts so to speak, that su- the, the, the things that actually happen that matter. And then part of this, um, setting all this up and, and, and arranging the furniture, so to speak, I think I, I would sum it up as this really comes down to a, a shift in the nature of authority in the West over a long period of time. We can't really, you know, it wasn't December 2nd, 1702, that was it, right? We got it, it it doesn't work that way. Uh, This happened over a long period of time and with a lot of cultural give and take. And a number of shifts gave rise to um, a new way of thinking about theology or the claims of theology. Not just Christian theology, by the way, Jewish theology, Muslim theology as well, just theology in general, right? Uh, I, I identified a shift in science, uh, a, a new kind of method that arose that said you can't know uh, the purpose of things anymore. You can only describe and know things and what they do. That's one of those shifts. Cause and, uh, cause and uh, facts are pulled apart. Facts and purpose are pulled apart. The second is a shift in philosophy uh, that, that gave rise to putting the human self, person, as the arbiter of meaning, Uh, René Descartes. Basically the shift in science meant the professors catch up. (laughs) And they said, well, we gotta come up with a way of explaining this now. And one way to explain it is that tradition uh, must be questioned. And and some of this has good reason because tradition can be wrong. (laughs) I mean, tradition can just be flat out wrong. Aristotle was wrong about the nature of the universe. Galileo was right. So it's not like this is just tilting at windmills. There's some legitimacy to it, but there's also another kind of authority that emerges, which is the thinking subject, me, the self-referential person. I determine truth. I can weigh all truth claims against my experience. Right, And the third uh, shift is the rise of empiricism in the Enlightenment uh, period and the attendant sort of cultural changes that went with the Enlightenment period that put experience and reason at the center of meaning as opposed to faith in uh, doctrine or what the church taught, or what your priest taught, what your minister taught. So. All of these things serve as a sort of background noise to the shift in authority that eventually trickles into the life of Christianity itself, in the way we do Christianity and think about it. Scripture is affected. Uh, you go to, you begin to see in the late 18th and into the 19th century, scripture being analyzed much more in terms of uh, its cultural and historical problems you know, an ancient Near Eastern document that needs to be figured out, right? It, that, that, that's an, a rise uh, that we see in this shift in authority. Other religious claims. How does Christianity fit in with other religious claims? What do you do with a, a billion Hindus? <laughs> A billion Muslim, Muslims, right? Uh, people, contact, global contact uh, moves the bar uh, on this shift in authority Saying, well, is there something just universally true in all of this? Aren't we all kind of getting at the same thing, so to speak, no matter what religious system we're born into? That's another shift in that I would call lowercase L liberalism. Um, the subjective and experiential. My feelings about things, what I, how I'm processing it as as an individual, uh, as opposed to, uh, is there something objective and historical that happened? Is there something that happened, right, uh, back there that still matters to me now? And we see a, there's a there's an evangelical version of this. This isn't just a, you know, limited to some corner of left wing Germany in the nineteenth century, there's a real American kind of you know, I'm not so much worried about doctrine, it's what I it's, it's what God's done for me. <laughs> so there's there's a overlapping Vengraf going on there in the nineteenth century. And this is this is the high as we move into what I want to cover today, it what we really see are the rise of ethics, the ethical teaching of Jesus, the ethics of Christianity, come to the fore as the dominant uh, mode of Christian thought, as opposed to uh, the life, death and resurrection of Christ as a real historical event tied to historical Israel, tied to the uh, creation of the church and our future future deaths and resurrection. All that is okay, (laughs) but how do I behave? So what is the universal sort of ethic that can be called out of Christianity. This I, I've called it in other talks, ethical Christianity is what it is, that's what Christian liberalism is. And that's why it's full of good, thoughtful people. But to Machen's point, is it Christianity? <laughs> and I think we're still living in this milieu. The final thing to set up, uh, uh, the, the shift of uh, is freedom. Our freedom as people is put in, in contest with our authority. We're at odds with ourselves. Uh, this is one of the rise of, of liberalism. We, uh, freedom and authority are put in, in attention. What, what does it mean to be uh, a free person who can think for myself um, and act for myself and pursue this ethical goodness that Christ taught us, but to no longer be under any binding Uh, sort of doctrinal authority. I don't have to confess anything necessarily about like the Nicene Creed as a fact of history. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm going to try to tease this out a little more. Any questions or comments about the the prolegomena, the background of this stuff? Um, Clear as mud, right? (laughs) All right. It, 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 you see what I'm saying? Uh, just think. It, 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 put simply, think in terms of a shift. What do I believe? You know? What do I believe? Uh, I want this freedom and authority thing. I want to. I want to try to draw an example from literature to set this up. And just bear with me on this. Um, but uh, there's a there's a a great chapter in uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky's Uh, the Grand, I'm sorry, uh, the Brothers Karab Matzoff called the Grand Inquisitor, okay, the Grand Inquisitor. And it's a much studied uh, section of this long book written about in the 1880s, I believe, 1860s maybe, uh, late 19th century. Uh, It's a much studied section, a lot of ink has been spilled. Uh, a lot of uh, jabbering about it you know what does it mean exactly in this in this chapter we have a conversation between two brothers who are somewhat protagonist in this story okay one is named Ivan and he's an atheist he's an atheist Alyosha is his younger brother and he is a pietistic believing christian okay and they are, uh, uh, Ivan and, and Alyosha are sitting in a tavern and they're talking and, and Ivan the atheist says to Alyosha, the, the somewhat what he sees as his naive, pietistic, sort of sappy little brother. Um, he says, let me tell you this story I'm working on. is a story of Jesus coming back to earth during the Inquisition in Spain. And he, Jesus is grilled by um, a, an inquisitor, an old, a 92 year old inquisitor. Remember, this is Ivan the Atheist. Sounds like that is your nickname. Uh, or your whole name, for that matter. Um, he, uh, it, here's what's fascinating about this. Here's what's fascinating <clears throat> about this Ivan says, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase for the sake of time, but Ivan says in his imaginary story where he takes this Catholic moment in the church. He says, the Inquisitor is really upset that Jesus has come back. He's messed everything up by coming back. And he says, it's just powerful literature. He says, you know why I'm really upset? The old man says, he says, because if you had just done what the devil asked you to do in the temptation in the wilderness, everyone would have believed. Everyone would have got it. Miracle and mystery and bread would have been there for all of us. But instead, you made this whole thing about faith. And you know, the church has just gotten this thing stable where we've got people convinced everything's taken care of. And here you are returning again to mess it up. You who failed to do what you could have done. Okay? um he the inquisitor says this to jesus he says do you see these stones in this bare scorching desert turn them into bread and all mankind will run after you like sheep grateful and obedient though eternally trembling lest you withdraw and your hand and your loaves cease for them but you did not want to deprive man of freedom and you rejected the author what sort of freedom is it, you reason, if obedience is brought with loaves of bread? And, and another section, he says, the people are more, he's talking to Christ. He says, people more than ever before that they are, com- are more certain than ever before that they are completely free. And at the same time, they themselves have brought us their freedom and obediently laid it at our feet. It is our doing, but is it what you wanted, this sort of freedom? So the old man representing the Catholic Church, who in Ivan's atheism represents abuse, authority, belief, is basically saying, why didn't you just do what you could have done in the desert, in the temptation? And the inquisitor says, we basically have accomplished as the church what you failed to do. with us, everyone will be happy, and they will no longer rebel or destroy each other as in your freedom everywhere. Oh, we shall convince them that they will only become free when they resign their freedom to us and submit to us, says the Inquisitor. <laughs> well, again, all right. We've got to hang with it for a minute. Let it sink in that this is an atheist telling a story to a believer, right? Um. The story ends in the, Christ doesn't say a word in the whole story. He simply gets up and in Dostoevsky words, kisses his bloodless 90 year old lips and walks away. Um, All right, what is Dostoevsky doing with this story? A lot, but let's take it back to this problem of liberalism and this problem of freedom. And, and, and how we understand our freedom, as now being able to question miracles, being able to question supernatural power, right? To look for truth strictly in the natural realm of the ethical and the behavioral. Well, one of the issues Dostoevsky is trying to point out in this late 19th century moment, which is kind of still our moment, is that religious gives us a kind of security by relieving us of our freedom, specifically ethical religion, liberal religion. It gives us a way of behaving, a way of ensuring a kind of um, peace in the midst of great doubt. But it's a false peace. It's a false piece. And here, Dostoevsky is actually anticipating a, a bigger problem in Western culture, a problem which we still live with. And that is that religion, religion will eventually be replaced with pseudo-religions, namely political ideology and scientific progress. That that's what's going to replace Ivan's problem. Ivan is deceived. He is saying, and Ivan actually goes mad in the book. It's a mystery. You have to read it. It takes about a year, but uh, it's Russian. <laughs> so, but there's a murder, and Ivan goes mad. So the atheism itself, his his freedom, Ivan's burden of freedom from the church, the satire, the mockery he's giving of Christ, it it, it cracks him. It breaks him, but The problem is the freedom still remains and we look for it somewhere else in the wake of this shift in authority that I tried to describe earlier. We grope for it personally, we grope for it culturally. We look to politics for our bread. We look to science for our miracles. That's what he's concerned with, you see. What do we look to religion for? Our ethics. What's happened is the supernatural has been called out, the miracle has been called out of Christianity, the miraculous, and what's been put in its place is a new kind of comfort, a false comfort, of good ethical universal religion that we all can agree to, even the Hindus, and hope that politics and science will relieve us of the the burden of being human. Dostoevsky says it this way. This is Ivan. You did not know that as soon as man rejects miracles, he will at once reject God as well. For man seeks not so much God as miracles. And since man cannot bear to be left without miracles... He will go and create new miracles for himself, his own miracles this time, and will bow down to the miracles of quacks or women's magic, though he be rebellious, heretical, and godless a hundred times over. I'm not sure what the women's magic part is there, but I think what he's after is You'll find, it's not God you'll want, but you will replace, you, your, your, your quest for naturalism, your pursuit of an ethical religion will ultimately lead you to find the miraculous in other things. The state, the university, um, uh, the National Science Foundation, <laughs> a cure for cancer, cure cancer. Imagine that if we cured cancer tomorrow what's left? I'm being facetious, of course, because everything's still left, right? Because you're still going to (laughs) die, no matter what you cure. The point is the shift in authority has affected the way we understand this freedom, and in the late 19th century, a brilliant mind like (coughs) this this writer, this Russian writer, Dostoevsky, you see that um, we're headed to a crisis, we're headed to a crisis. Ethical. Once you've taken the facts of Christianity, the historicity of Christianity, that Jesus did these things, you've created. Uh, once you've taken that out of the meaning of Christianity, you've you've opened up uh, a whole new kind of religion. That you the void will not stand. You will fill it with something. Culture will fill it with something. I hope that wasn't too um, Russian, but let me uh, let me let me try to let me try to explain it. This <laughs> everybody's like huh? a good white Russian right now. After that, right? Um, <laughs> the um, let me try it this way. Let me just try it this way. Protestants during the Reformation, it, what what's been called the Magisterial Reformation, those, those first fifty to hundred years, Protestants. They needed theological accuracy. Okay, they sought it. They worked hard at analyzing the Bible and writing out what does it teach, because the margin between uh, error, uh, the margin of error, was was between being wrong and being damned. That'll put you to work. If I'm wrong, I'm damned. Protestant liberalism, by contrast, is not as concerned with dogmatic scruples, precision, that these are the things that are taught by Christianity. These things take a backseat to social and cultural influence. It's less exacting than writing a confession. You simply don't have to be precise. Why? Because Protestant liberals find a happier home in broad expressions of Christianity rather than communions that seek doctrinal precision. Liberal theology has abandoned dogma. They did it earlier than evangelicals, but evangelicals are making up the difference the last hundred years or so. Confessional subscription, and when I say confessions, I'm talking about like our 39 articles. Or the Westminster Confession of Faith. Or even the Council of Trent that the Catholic Church wrote in response to Protestantism. Confessional subscription. Saying that the Bible teaches these things. Christianity believes these things. We did it this morning uh, when we recite the Nicene Creed. We're actually confessing. This is what Christianity is. Okay. That's dogma. By and large, it has what I'm arguing is that uh, these shifts in authority, what we see is that this type of Christianity has sputtered and, and shrank between the 18th and the 20th century. We simply don't live in a unified church where everyone believes that this is what Christianity is. In its place, liberal Christianity provided a convenient flexibility that older Protestant models Lacked. Confessional Protestantism, Anglicanism, Presbyterianism, even Baptists had a confession of faith at one point um, back in the um, 1600s. Lutherans, another big one. Confessional Protestantism. These traditions barred from a tradition that that said the faith could be understood by propositional content. You can say what it is and trust God to do the rest. Propositional content. Anyone with a modicum of rational ability can be told and explained, and it can be explained to them that uh, this is what Jesus did, and this is what it means to believe that Jesus did these things. That's the older model. Propositional truth. To say it is is for it to be true. That's a proposition, is to say it and then to determine the viability of it. Propositional truth, uh, the Christian faith, uh, could be expressed uh, this way. Of course, the problem is especially in the early modern period, is that propositional truth to say, this is what the Bible teaches, or this is what we should believe, it comes with liabilities, which is, you may not believe that's what it means, you may not, and if we're living in the middle of Bavaria, you know, in the 1600s, we're gonna go to war over it. It means people die, people fight, they kill each other. That's the price of confessional Christianity at one time in our history. That's the price of propositional truth claims about scripture or confessions or um, salvation. Liberal Christianity, the shift in authority, slips around the problem by urging us that Christian truth is not so much about assent to or confession of certain things that happen, belief in these things, as it is a commitment to the social and cultural utility, the ethics, that the belief provides. I'll repeat that. I'll repeat that, okay? Liberal Christianity, it slips around the problem of fighting over what doctrine is about, like Catholics and Protestants. It slips around it by teaching us that Christianity is not so much about it's not so much about whether the Nicene Creed is accurate about Scripture or not. Because when we recite the Nicene Creed, for example, or when we turn to the 39 articles, for example, you know what we're really turning to? A roadmap of of, of the Bible. A little shiny Bible. uh, we're, We're turning to a roadmap of God's Word. Because God's Word says a lot. And without a roadmap or a compass, you can get lost. So when we turn to these things, that's really what we're doing. And if they've been done right, and they've been done uh, in in the context of, of, uh, of pursuing truth, which we believe, for instance, the 39 articles have, then it's an accurate compass. It doesn't mean every detail's worked out for us, but it's an accurate compass for us, an accurate map. Liberal Christianity, by contrast, is not so concerned about that. It's simply not relevant. What's relevant is, does Christianity give us good moral, social, political, cultural usefulness to make us better people? And that goes way back to Machen's quote, which is, I hope so, (laughs) you know, I, I, I don't think that's wrong per se, but is it the heart of what Christianity is? In other words, can you carve out the history? Can you carve out the propositional facts? Can you carve out the miracles and say, I still have Christianity? For liberal Christianity or liberal Protestantism especially, unity and usefulness take priority over divisiveness, the messy divisiveness of history and doctrine. Political and cultural causes unite where confessions like our 39 articles divide. To acknowledge a confession of faith like the articles or the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, these things we say Sunday to Sunday. I don't know about you, but personally this is one of the highlights of sermon, for the sermon the service for me week to week is to actually be able to say this is what I believe. This is what I believe. Uh, now I remember when I was in grad school at a particular church, a young woman in her 30s. Uh, I got a call. Uh, she was at the church. I mean, we didn't know anybody. We were in grad school. So we were just clueless, floating around. Yeah. But, but I knew what this meant. I got a call saying, you know, she was going to die of cancer with three little children, and I didn't know what to do. I, I was walking around, and I and I just started saying the uh, the Apostles' Creed, and then the Nicene Creed, and then and and I had no idea. You know, I didn't know uh, what kind of silly prayer to utter. Uh, but it was just an attempt to to to, to reorient myself at that moment, twenty-something years old, seeing this tragedy unfold. You know, maybe, maybe you've had those kind of experiences. That's what confession can do, because it puts us back to the facts. This is what happened. Utility and usefulness take priority over messy divisions of dogma and history. Political and cultural causes often unite us in liberal Christianity where the articles divide us, or the Westminster Confession of Faith divides us, or the Nicene Creed. And why would they divide us? They would divide us because those documents, if they're a true roadmap to to scripture, are actually dependent upon miracles. The supernatural has to matter whether you understand it or not. It has to govern the natural. To acknowledge a confession of faith as a true expression of Christianity is to say your imagination, your thoughts about this are inadequate if they cannot be tested against what these confessions and what the church has taught. That's where we have to begin to understand scripture and to understand what we believe. Every confession of faith, the Augsburg Confession, the 39 Articles, Trent, the Belgic Confessions of the Low Countries, Westminster Confession of the Presbyterians and the Scots, they make explicit claims about ministry, the church, and the sacraments. They make explicit claims about who Christ is. They pointedly make explicit claims. This is different. This type of meticulousness, this type of precision is different it 's even antithetical to what i 'm calling liberalism it's it's it 's hostile to liberalism in some ways why because the theological details matter peripherally or secondarily or at all not at all to the big picture possibility of social justice or peace or good behavior or the right type of culture the this is what Uh, uh, this is what matters more because it's ultimately tied to what's ethical. Jesus as good teacher. Jesus as moral leader. Not Jesus as bloody sacrifice in real space, in real time. Now, am I saying that all liberals don't believe this? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. But I am talking about a trend. I'm talking about a disposition. I'm talking about a a kind of uh, an orientation of two different ways of thinking about Christianity, regardless of what a population of individuals think. Building and managing the right kind of social reform slowly takes priority over disciplined habits. Some would say even boring habits, my children would, of of going to church and learning these older theological forms. These older theological forms are what lead us week after week to confess our faith through Nicaea. Or we have wonderful ministers who constantly, when uh, we're not just biblically oriented, but they'll say, look, look at what our communion teaches through its articles, through its, its documents that say this is what the Bible teaches, right? The particulars matter. History matters. Facts matter. It's not that our faith is in the facts or the history per se, but it's that God, superintended by his promises, tells us that these things matter. If the tomb is not empty, go home. Just go home. It's so much easier to sleep in. I've done it. (laughs) Liberalism strives for a universal triumphant ideal without the weight of particularity. Particularity is what we confess. Let me give you an example of this. This is from Article 2 of the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. This is about as particular as it gets. The Son, which is the word of the Father, begotten from everlasting of the Father, the very and eternal God of one substance with the father took man's nature in the womb boy that's physicality a womb of the blessed virgin of her substance so that the two whole and perfect natures that is to say the godhead and manhood were joined together in one person never to be divided whereof is one christ very god and very man who truly suffered was crucified, dead, and buried to reconcile his father to us and to be a sacrifice not only for original guilt but also for the actual sins of men. That's as particular, historical, and messy as it gets. And it's the incarnation. You see, there's a phrase in there, to reconcile. A lot of communions love that phrase, reconciliation. But notice, in a confession, that is a roadmap or a compass of scripture, reconciliation doesn't happen without the weight of particularity, a real body in a real womb and a real God who becomes a real man who really dies and really unites us to himself. It simply is not possible. Reconciliation only makes sense for the confessional Christian In light of real things. All right, so who do you trust? Well, not me. So I mean, if anything, go and check everything I'm saying because you know, I've only had one cup of coffee. So let, but but if, but the that that's why it matters. That whole speech was why I think it matters. So I've tried to say why it's significant. Now, why it matters, and let me let me just say, who do you trust? I would That's an that's an awful question, because we do live on the other side of the divide of of the old way of thinking, and we we have to we can't do, we we are taught to be skeptics from the time we're little bitty. Uh, we're raised to be critical and uh, suspicious, and sometimes that's okay, right? I, I'm going to go with the obvious. I think you have to trust God's Word, but I think you have to trust God's Word and test it against the people that are teaching it and delivering it to you. Um, In other words, I think you have to be an active agent. You don't just trust blindly. You test it. You think about your compasses, like the Anglican 39 Articles or the Nicene Creed, and you ask yourself, um, is that what I'm being taught? Do the particulars matter? If you're gonna trust, if you're gonna trust, you have to be vulnerable. And if you're gonna be vulnerable, that means the people that are teaching you need to be vulnerable as well about their own um, sinful liabilities. I think that's how we know that we're in the right, headed the right direction. I, I, I thought about this from 1 John, and I'll stop here. This is the first epistle of John, first letter of John. Uh, Listen to this. Who do we trust? Well, listen to what John says. He's talking. uh, This is, you know, 2,000 years ago. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and which we looked upon and have touched with our own hands, concerning the word of life, The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. That's not a universal abstraction. That's not an ethical ideal. That's not just, here's how to be good. That's the messiness of touch and sight. And he doesn't say it, but smell and hearing. It's the engagement of something real and particular that happened. And that's what we have to trust. Thank you. That's what I have for today. (laughs) Any questions or yes, sir like no matter how profound the question or how erudite the proposed answer yeah. seems to be the simple truth boils down to that passage from hebrews right there on that flag yeah right i mean it, it, no that's that's right um and, and in other parts of the bible christ actually says you've seen me it's the ones who haven't seen me that I'm really with, yeah. <laughs> I'm with you, but guess how I'm going to be with them? So you're right, you're right. I've asked a bunch of questions. Yeah. <laughs> and the answers yeah. always drive it deeper, they don't, yeah. until we get to that. One thing that, uh, I deal with college students, that's my job uh, a lot, and I, even as, as a younger person myself, I was pretty skeptical. Um, I don't think we should discourage skepticism. That's not what I'm trying to say here about the facts or the history. What I am trying to say, though, is if it's going to be Christianity, we have to take into consideration the testimony that John just gave. You don't get it past by saying it teaches me to be a better person. And I'm grateful for that. We need all the better people we can get in this horrible world. <laughs> I'm, I, I love better neighbors. <laughs> but that's not necessarily what I'm confessing as a Christian. That, that's all I'm, I'm trying to get at. Your skepticism is not the sin. Your skepticism is not something I'm here to fight. But if your skepticism is going to be applied to confessional Christianity, I would encourage, and like this passage says as well, Uh, those things unseen if that's where your skepticism is you might want to think about ethical christianity too is that really an alternative because a lot of people will say i just want to be a good person and i don't believe what you believe i just want to be good i think i'm a good person and i'm grateful common grace i'm grateful you are a good person but you can be damned and be a good person, and that's the hard truth of it all. That's the sick. That's the that's the nauseating truth of it. When you stare at it without hope. So, uh, I do think that's where liberalism and orthodoxy depart. So, well, are we confident now we understand this forever? And, <laughs> <laughs> and amen. <laughs> so, all right. Advent Church because I have grandchildren in Connecticut and my daughter and son-in-law are up there trying their best to find anything that is not liberalism and that's one of the people out of town and I'm sorry. No. it because this is so relevant in our lives with the Yeah. No, we if you've ever lived in other parts of the country, you're so right. Uh-huh. I mean, well, and even in Alabama. I mean, you just never know. It really is a beggar's feast. Like where am I and who do I how do I find something that I can test this against that don't tell me to be good. I'm not good. Uh-huh. I'm not good. I cannot reconcile somebody without Christ to to somebody. I can't. There's a song lying in the song that says, if they weren't for bad, you'd be good. (laughs) You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.